0: So this morning, we we're we looking at a story in, in Luke, another resurrection story, Luke 24 verses 36 through 49. That'll be on the screen behind me, or if you've got it with you, look, look at it there. Uh, it'll be on the screen in front of you, uh, Luke twenty four thirty six through 49. Before we read it, let's pray again. God, we're just uh, grateful once again to, to gather together here in this way. I'm grateful that you've made it possible for us to do this in person, for us to do this virtually, and yet remain one body. Thank you. And we just take a few moments to, to sort of quiet ourselves and We trust, Spirit, that you're here, that you were here before we even got here, and that you'll do whatever it is you do in us to help us hear your creative, generative word. And we ask that we would be changed by it and made new somehow. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 24, starting at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, talking about what? We're kind of jumping in the middle of it. I'll provide some context later. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do you doubt? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. You know what we're on, his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You, you are witnesses to these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. We will go that far. So much going on there. So, here's the deal. When you get to the end of Luke's telling of the Jesus story, you can't help but notice that it seems like Luke just can't get enough of the resurrection. Can't get enough writing about it. He can't get enough talking about it. He just can't get enough of the resurrection. In some 53 verses at the end of his telling of the Jesus story, we have four different Easter stories. Being told the first of those stories is the astonishing, uh, if not somewhat hard to believe, account of the actual resurrection of Jesus. The last of the four Easter stories in Luke's gospel is Jesus ascending into heaven. The story, the second of those stories, the story before the one that we read uh, this morning, is about two friends. They're they're walking home to. To this, they're walking on this road to their home, presumably in this little village called Emmaus. And uh, after the horrifying things that took place in Jerusalem, right the arrest, the trial, the brutal beating, and the death of their dear friend Jesus these two friends are, of Jesus are headed back home to this little village of Emmaus, probably to mourn, maybe even to hide because they're afraid of being associated. With Jesus. They're afraid of, that people might make the connection that they're Jesus people. And on their way, a stranger sort of comes up next to them and asks them a question, hey guys, what are, you, what, what are you talking about? And they're all like, where have you been the last week or so? And Jesus is like, you know, the huge dead buried in a tomb, hiding under a rock. No, he didn't say that. You know, he's, so he asked them to tell us. And then he opened the scriptures and he started telling them, Right? The story of the scriptures that sort of reveal who he is and what needed to happen to him. And then they got back to Emmaus and they're like, hey, it's late, it's dinner time. Do you want to come and have a, do you want to come and have a bite, bite to eat? And he agrees. And it was during that, the middle of that ordinary dinner together that he takes an ordinary piece of bread. And he gives thanks for it. And he breaks it. And then he gives it to them. Oh, and it's in that moment that their eyes are open and they realize that this stranger who'd been walking with them on this ordinary road to the ordinary town of Emmaus was none other than the risen one, than Jesus himself. And just as they figure that out, poof, he's gone. And they're like, wait, what? So, Obviously somewhat weirded out by that experience, and yet somehow strangely excited. They run back to Jerusalem, and they start telling the other disciples about what had happened as they walked down the road back home to Emmaus. And this is where we pick up our story this morning. While they were still talking about this, talking about how they had encountered Jesus, the the thanking, the breaking, the giving of the bread, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace, be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Now just try to imagine it. Using your imagination is really important when we encounter scripture. So try to imagine it. And now it's, it's a little bit easier for us to imagine because we watch movies with CGI and stuff, but they didn't have that stuff. So before Jesus actually appeared to them, it would have been impossible for them to imagine, something they never would have dreamed of. As they were telling the disciples about what had happened on the road to the little town, ordinary town of Emmaus, Jesus suddenly stood among them. As they were witnessing, telling, talking to the disciples about the reality of the resurrection, the resurrected one just appeared among them. There was no knock on the door. There, nobody rang a doorbell. Nobody let him in. Suddenly, he's just there. If you read other accounts of the resurrection stories, they were locked in the room because they were afraid, right? And so suddenly there is Jesus among them. What in the world does that mean? What in the world might it possibly mean to us? Suddenly, there he is. I think it probably means lots of things. But I think at least it means maybe one thing. I think that maybe it means that Jesus will meet us wherever it is we are. No matter where we are, Jesus will meet. That's what our faith tells us, right? There, there exists no situation in our lives into which the risen one cannot enter. Apparently, he can walk through doors and walls, and you can still touch him. There are no hearts that are so hopeless. There are no relationships that are so empty. There are no places so bruised and battered that the risen one won't meet us there. Those places aren't off limits to Jesus. There are no corners in the world. There are no places in the universe that have do not enter signs that Jesus will actually obey. I think, I think that's part of what these Easter stories are trying to tell us. These stories are trying to tell us that Jesus comes to us wherever we are. They're trying to tell us that the risen Jesus is loose in the world, and there's no way of stopping him from showing up. No way. I think that's what these stories are trying to tell us. And for some of us, that's easier to believe. For some of us who've sort of been in the center of culture, in the center of reality, in the center of society, it's sort of easier for us to believe. Those of us who who've enjoyed power, who've enjoyed privilege, like we have everything we need, like we got everything. It's easy to believe that God is on my side. And I also recognize that there, there are those who who find this hard to believe, who struggle this, with this idea that Jesus meets us wherever we are, because there, there are some among us, whether it's because of race or ethnicity or or sexuality, or gender, or all sorts of other reasons, class. Sometimes it's hard to believe that Jesus will meet us in those places too. I get it. All I can do is, is read the story and tell you what I think it means. And I think these stories really are trying to tell us that even if we're behind closed doors, locked in a stuffy room, Jesus will meet us there too. We might just have a Jesus sighting. You know, if you Google Jesus sightings, a really interesting thing happens. I encourage you to do it sometime. Um <laughs> If you, if you put Jesus sightings in, into Google, that enormous search engine will come up with almost 7,000 different websites sort of devoted to telling you of Jesus sightings. Uh, now, apparently Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and even some angels have decided to forget their normal way of appearing to people and instead have decided to appear to people in, in things like uh, tree stumps and tortillas and fish sticks, and frying pans, and other things. Have you seen this? Like, every once in a while, there'll even be like a news report on these things, right? Years ago, a woman auctioned off a 10-year-old burnt grilled cheese sandwich with an image of Jesus on it for $28,000. What? Are you kidding me? Even better, do an image search for Jesus sightings. And you come up, you'll see them, Right, They're interesting. You'll find Jesus in the clouds. There's a ton of cloud ones where you're like, there's the image of Jesus. You'll see Jesus in potato chips. You'll see Jesus in cappuccinos. Uh, you'll see Jesus in the wood grain of a door. You'll even find a full-bodied Jesus Cheeto. I'm not kidding. It's hilarious. You can even find Jesus appearing on the rear end of a dog. Like, I was gonna show pictures of them on the screen, but I got to that one, I'm like, nah, man, we can't put that up there, ew. But you'll find it, it's not hard to find, right? And there are lots of people who sort of take these things seriously as if Jesus showing up in a Cheeto or on the rear end of a dog is some sort of communication from the divine. Now, (laughs) I know, it's funny, it's fine. It's fine. Like, ask dad later, he'll find it, and it'll be good. (laughs) Why wouldn't you giggle at that all day? Garrett, I love you. So, you know, apparently... (laughs) Still giggling, loudly, I love it. This is the best. So... (laughs) So apparently these things are being taken seriously, right? As if this is some sort of communication from the divine. Now I don't know about you, but I think that's a little too hocus pocus for me. Like when I look at some of these, you know, the image of Jesus that shows up in a tortilla or a fish stick looks more like uh, more like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings than what Jesus probably actually looked like. But 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 what do I know, right? So. But here's, here's, I don't know what to think about all this, I don't know what you think about all this, but here was, here's what it seems to communicate to me, that people are actually yearning for God, the divine, to show up in the ordinary, to show up in the sort of ordinary, everyday ordinariness of life. Like, people actually yearn for that, and maybe that's true, maybe... More and more people are sort of looking for some sort of sign that they can hang their faith on, hang their life on in the middle of a world that just seems to, to get so crazy and it seems to be spinning so out of control and becoming more fractured and fragmented than ever before. Maybe, maybe people really are searching, looking for, for some sense that Jesus might actually possibly show up in the ordinariness of life wherever we are, whenever we are there, I think we do yearn for that. I think that's somehow built into the human heart. And that's, of course, exactly what our faith tells us, right? I mean, we've all heard this song and dance before. I'm not saying anything new, but it's consistent, right? The Jesus of Easter is the same Jesus of the incarnation, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, showing up in the world in the middle of the ordinariness of life. Right? And I think that's a good thought to live into maybe, even if we feel like God might be distant, far off, that at any moment, if we're paying attention, oh, there's the risen one among us. The disciples couldn't believe it happened. The disciples couldn't believe that Jesus was there. Nah, not right away. No, they were startled and frightened, Luke tells us. They thought they saw a ghost. Who can blame them? Of course. So they think they see a ghost. Fear and doubt, those seem to be the two main emotions that sort of was filling their hearts that day. Fear and doubt. We know those well, don't we? Like, we feel right at home in the realities of fear and doubt. We know those things really well. And traditionally speaking, fear and doubt have sort of been presented to us as the enemies of faith, right? The enemies of faith that somehow fear and doubt combined become the antithesis of faith. But what if that's not true? What if that's not true? What if that isn't the case. What if we, in fact, flip that idea upside down, as the story seems to do? What if fear and doubt can somehow be a gift? What if fear and doubt are nothing more than invitations for Jesus to join us right where we are? What if fear and doubt are actually open doors or closed doors through which Jesus will actually enter. Frederick Buechner once wrote this. Whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or sleeping. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. I love that. Doubts, are the ants in the pants? Have you ever seen a kid and you're like, dude has ants in his pants or she's got ants in her pants and they can't stop moving? He says, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot because it seems to me that what Beekner is saying is that fear and doubt are real honest feelings. What Beekner is saying is that is that fear and doubt are honest because when, you, because when you doubt, at least you're taking the idea of God seriously. The feelings of doubt and fear are evidence that we're at least acknowledging the idea of God, even maybe wrestling with God instead of just completely dismissing God. And these doubts and fears might just be the doors through which the risen one might walk into your heart or into the hearts of others, like he walked through the fears and doubts of the disciples that first Easter. Jesus comes to us wherever we are. I think that's what this story is telling us, don't you? At least it seems that way to me, even through our fears and even through our doubts. But that isn't even the end of the story, and it might not be the most astonishing thing that we find in this story. So Jesus walked through the fears and doubts of those first disciples, and then he told them that that, they were going, that he was going to use them as his witnesses to be his presence in the world. What? These people? Locked in a room, fearing and doubting? Verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. Witnesses, they were his witness. We, with all our doubts, fears, screw-ups and scars, witnesses to these things. Witnesses for Jesus in the world. Sometimes when we hear this, sometimes we really do wrestle with fears and doubts, especially about that idea. We find ourselves feeling, with the, feeling the same sort of emotions the disciples did when Jesus appeared to them in a closed room. But look again how Jesus comes to us. He comes to us wherever we are, but he comes to us as one marked with brokenness. And I think every year we have to talk about this. When we talk about Easter and the resurrection, we have to talk about how Jesus is still marked with brokenness. Verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled and doubts raised in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. What's he talking about? He's talking about his scars, the marks of the cross, his brokenness. He still has them. It is I myself, he says. Even after the resurrection, Jesus still has marks of the cross. The post-resurrection brokenness of Jesus, I think, reminds us of some of the things that he said to his disciples before he went to the cross. It says, I came to serve, but not to be served. Many who will be first will be last, but the last will be first. If anyone wants to be first, they will become last and servant of all. Servant of all. That might be one of the mainest of main ideas for Jesus. Servant Of all. You see, the post resurrection Jesus is marked with brokenness. A brokenness that reminds us he's servant of all. Of all. So if we, followers of Jesus, are going to do this following Jesus thing well, what might that cause us? Well, it might it might cause us some pain it might actually leave marks on us real ones it's certainly going to cost us something right it costs us financially it costs us it costs us time it costs us energy sometimes it will cost us reputation especially among among some really religious people our reputation might be tarnished And the end result might be that, well, we'll be marked. We'll be broken by it too. And maybe the way that we get over our fears, maybe the way that we get over our doubts about following Jesus really well is to just serve really well. To serve the city of Ames and beyond and to serve so hard and so extravagantly that it will actually leave a mark on us. There's a story about Shane Claiborne. I've told a few stories about him over the years, but I really like this one. If you don't know who Shane Claiborne is, he's a sort of an urban monk connected with the simple way in Philadelphia. You can Google him, follow him on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Uh, Really cool dude. Anyway. Uh, He had the privilege of of going before Mother Teresa died. he He went to India to serve along the Sisters of Charity in Calcutta. And in keeping with Eastern tradition, Mother Teresa and the rest of the sisters, when they would go to the hallowed halls of prayer, they would enter into it and they would first, they would take their shoes off because that's what you do. And Shane was stunned to see that Mother Teresa's feet were so gnarled and twisted that it appeared that she had been crippled, crippled and deformed by some sort of disease. And so after prayer, Shane asked one of the other sisters, what, what disease or, or what, you know, what caused Mother Teresa's feet to, to become so crippled and gnarled and bent up? And the sister said, oh, it, it's not a disease. It's just that when the community receives a new donation of new shoes, Uh, She lets everybody else pick their shoes first, and then she takes whatever is left over. So a lifetime of wearing mismatched, undersized, broken-out shoes had transformed literally the feet of Mother Teresa's into mismatched, undersized, broken little stumps. Think of that. Mother Teresa's feet, in a real embodied way, reflected her dedication to mission, to witness, to love for neighbor. I'm guessing that her feet are just as ugly in heaven as they, as they were here. In fact, there, wherever there is, her feet are probably, next to Jesus's, some of the most beautiful feet you can find. Maybe if we were to serve like that. Maybe if we were to give ourselves away like that. Maybe if we were able to serve so hard that it would leave a mark on us. Maybe maybe then, and maybe it's only then that the world around us will have a Jesus sighting themselves. not the kind that we find in fish sticks and frying pans, but the real embodied kind in us. Maybe they'll see it in our brokenness. Maybe as we give ourselves away, our wounds and our brokenness, we'll communicate to the world that we really don't exist for ourselves, that this isn't just some sort of social club that we've gathered here together for. It communicates to the world that we're, willing to give up anything in order for people to meet the risen one in us. When we live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and serve like Jesus, chances are we'll become wounded like Jesus. But when we live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and serve like Jesus, the world around us begins seeing less and less of us and more and more the real embodied presence of Jesus. So why don't we? What do you say? Why don't we do that? In our own lives, in our life together. Why don't we do that? Let's live like Jesus. Let's love like Jesus. Let's serve like Jesus. Let's give ourselves away like Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, those who do not yet know him will recognize it in us.